So this morning, as you can see, I'm preaching, I'm talking to us about uh, sex, and here's hoping that doesn't, here we go. That's still the same, lovely. Trying some fancy new technologies. It's gone well for me in the past. Why stop now? Um, we, the reason, one of the reasons we're doing this mini-series into Family Matters is, is partly because normally we preach through books of the Bible. This is the normal way uh, that we want to preach. We are keen to preach God's word. It's not, this isn't God's word, the, the Bible is God's word. Um, and what we're doing uh, up at the front is just kind of unpacking it a little bit, showing how it fits into our lives a little bit, and really just signposting the way. This, look, look at what God says. Look at how this is wonderful for us. Look at how this transforms our lives. It's signposting. So we look through books of the Bible at a time to see them in context. But when we do that, inevitably we miss out a few things. We, there's gaps and there's things that we can't maybe go into as deep as we'd like to. And one of the topics that's come up time and time again as we've gone through Galatians, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, as we've gone through Nehemiah, has been kind of the idea of family, the ideas of sex and singleness and those things. Um, so what we wanted to do is just cover a little bit um, those topics. And I'm aware this morning that sex is a sensitive topic uh, for many of us, if not, if not all of us. Um, it's a sensitive area personally for people, and it might be hard to hear at times what the Bible has to say about sex. And I'm aware of, of this, and my encouragement is that if anything that I say or, or that you hear over the course of this uh, mini-series, or any series, or any time, um, if, if, it, if it kind of causes difficulty, pain, disquiet, if it's sort of like a there, there, there's an area, there's an issue that you think, ooh, I'm not sure about that, or that challenges me. My encouragement really is to, to speak to someone. Don't let it go. It could be uh, that God is putting his finger on an area in your life, and it could be that you need to speak to someone and, and say, that really affected me because I'm going through this, and, uh, and I need your help to, to be prayed with. So small group leaders, that's why small groups are so important, to get along to small group, to be there, to be able to talk to them, to communicate, and, uh, and to pray with one another. Uh, but that being said, if, if anything I say this morning uh, affects you or you've got questions, please do come and speak to me um, afterwards or anytime. Uh, that's, that's absolutely uh, what I would want. Again, I, I obviously can't preach on everything. I can't talk about all of uh, sex and sexuality. There'll be loads of stuff I'll miss out. And so um, there'll, you know, there'll, be, there'll be loads of questions, really, that we're left with. I just want to start a conversation that will go on and on as we continue to look at God's word. So sensitive uh, personally, but this is also sensitive culturally. Um, we're still there, good. Uh, sensitive culturally. As we look at what the Bible teaches, we find that it's very different to what our culture teaches. Uh, this is true on almost any topic, um, but it's certainly true here. And there's a pressure in church and in churches uh, today to compromise on what the Bible says. And uh, I'm aware of this this morning as well, that um, this is, there's, there's a different narrative, there's a different uh, gospel out there in the world on this issue. And it says different things. Um, we see in um, the world today the gospel of romance and individualism preaching to us every day in every song and in every Hollywood movie. It says this, follow your heart, follow your desires, that this is the way to be happy and fulfilled. 
But ultimately, we have a different gospel. Uh, The gospel that we have, uh, Jesus sums up, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is who satisfies. He is who fulfills. And kind of giving away the the end of this message and, and really every message that we're ever going to preach is that really it's, it's Jesus who satisfies. It's he who fulfills. Set your eyes. That was the theme of our worship this morning. Set our eyes on him. He is the one who satisfies. But the world is speaking a different gospel to our hearts in subtle days, ways every day. And uh, a quote from a guy called Vaughan Roberts, who's teaching uh, on sex and sexuality, I found really helpful. And I'll share that with you in a minute. He said this, um, we as Christians need to respond to the world's message, uh, not with moral instruction, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, but rather with a better story of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And that is crucial. Today I am going to talk about some things that, that Paul the Apostle says that are maybe a bit hard-hitting, maybe a little bit about how we should live our life, but it's because there's a better story. There's a greater narrative than the one that the world gives us. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And just as we worshipped, I felt challenged that some of us perhaps have doubts about the truth of that. Really, deep down, we think, does Jesus really have my best interests at heart? Uh, And that might be a question we want to ask ourselves today. Is is that a doubt I have? Do I really believe that Jesus has my best interests at heart? Because I can tell you he does. He absolutely does. He wants your best. He wants joy, fullness of joy, abundant life for you this morning. Um, And and we might need help this morning from the Holy Spirit to see that. So uh, I wanted to share this resource with you straight away. Uh, This is um, a guy called Vaughan uh, Vaughan Roberts there. Vaughan Williams is a composer. Vaughan Roberts is an Anglican uh, priest in the UK. He's part of the Church of England. And he did this amazing sermon series on the Song of Songs which if you've read, is a fairly graphic love poem uh, between a man and a woman um, it, that we, we see in, in it's part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and it's a fascinating uh, book, uh, really, um, and quite, quite dense, difficult to get hold of. And he does five sermons um, over the course of a week, um, about an hour long each. So if you've got the time, I, I would recommend this thoroughly. And if you want that link... I can share it with you afterwards. Uh, so in a few, today I'm talking about sex. In a few weeks, I'll also be talking about singleness. And I do see there's a tie in. There's a sort of a two-parter element almost. So just to be aware, if, if you're sitting here thinking, this has nothing to do with me, it, it absolutely does. Uh, but also we will be showing how uh, singleness fits into the picture of family life, marriage, and sex. Uh, in a few weeks' time. So I'd like to uh, start by reading a passage of the Bible. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be reading all the way to the end of the chapter and the first verse of chapter 7, and I'm going to read in the NIV this morning. Um, so you can follow along with me up here as well. This is Paul the Apostle writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, chapter 6, verse 13 He says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, 
uh, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united uh, with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Uh, And chapter 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Wow. We, do, we like to deal with the, the trickier parts of the Bible, for sure. Corinth uh, was a Greek trading port. It was a kind of a cultural melting pot, um, similar to Gothenburg today. And what we see in the letter is that uh, Paul is dealing with lots of issues uh, throughout the letter. And at this point, he's dealing specifically with uh, two views that the Corinthian church had uh, about sexuality, about sex, about how sex should be viewed. And we see in these verses two views um, about sex. Uh, The first view we see in verse 16. The first verse we read, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, the Corinthians are saying uh, sex is just an appetite, like food. When you're hungry, you eat. When you want sex, you you have sex. It's just an appetite. It's perfectly natural, perfectly normal, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be worried with. You you can enjoy uh, sex anytime, in any way, as long as you're not hurting or harming anyone else. Uh, It it doesn't matter because uh, the belief in in some Greek culture, for Stoics specifically, uh, they believed that the body and the soul were two separate things, that the body would just die. That's this, and God will destroy them both. That's what that kind of means. It doesn't matter what you do with your body, because at the end of the day, that, that's going to be destroyed. It's what you do with your soul that counts. And seeing as sex is purely physical, uh, then there's no Im- implications. It doesn't have an effect. So go on ahead. That was the one view, the first view, that Paul is, is speaking into. The second view we see in chapter 7, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or in the old King James, it said not to touch a woman, which is maybe a little bit, a little bit more extreme. Um, again, this view, it's almost the opposite. There's a group of people who are sort of saying, oh, sex is a bit dirty. Maybe we should avoid it entirely. In fact, if you were really holy, if you were really, if you were really like, certain about your faith, you were going to give it your all, you would avoid sex entirely. And so we have these two different opposing views going on. And uh, uh, we see them in today uh, as well. They're, they're, not, they're not wildly different to the views that we have here. We have, on one hand, sex is just an appetite to be enjoyed. Perhaps that's most common here in Gothenburg and in Sweden and in, in kind of a Western culture. But also the sex is dirty view we see too. Often more conservative cultures... 
uh, more conservative political groups, uh, as well like within religious groups as well. Uh, the idea that you know, if you were serious about your faith, that you wouldn't you wouldn't go there, or or we don't talk about sex. It's a bit of a taboo subject. We certainly wouldn't express a delight in sex or an enjoyment in sex. It's not something to be kind of uh, kind of exalted over and said, yes, sex is brilliant. You wouldn't do that. That would be uh, strange. And we see both of these views are current today. And I think that's uh, important to see because um, it shows us that what Paul is actually saying to the Corinthian church is incredibly relevant to us. Christianity isn't this old-fashioned view of sex because it speaks into a context and a culture very similar to our own. In fact, what Paul presents and what we'll go on to see is that uh, Paul isn't speaking into a, a culture and a context so much as he's speaking into the human condition. He's not making a generalized, this is for you, Corinth. He's saying, this is for humanity. This is what sex means. This is what sex does. And this is how we ought to view it. Um, there's a, there's a guy, uh, a biblical scholar called F.F. F. Bruce, and he says this uh, about this passage. Paul displays a psychological insight into sex that was unheard of in his day. He insists that it is an, an act that by its very nature engages the entire person in a unique moment of self-disclosure and self-commitment. And I'm going to unpack that as we go on. But what I find really helpful there is that this is an insight that Paul had into sex was unheard of in his day. It was radical. And Jesus' teaching on sex, marriage, on singleness was unheard of, unprecedented in their day. And is still revolutionary to today. It's countercultural it will always face opposition because it goes against the, 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 the narrative, the story that the world wants to tell us and that the, the world was telling the Corinthian church. So what does Paul say to these two views? Uh, he, he says that they're both wrong. There he is. Um, you can tell I, I've been having fun with my slide making recently. Um, so... Paul, Paul goes on to express and explain that uh, sex is uh, rather is not just a, 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 an appetite. It's not uh, this dirty thing. Both of these views are fundamentally wrong. So what does he say about sex? Well, in verse uh, 16, we see Paul says, uh, flee sexual immorality. He uses the word for sexual immorality as the Greek word pornea, which is, of course, where we get the word pornography from. Although it doesn't mean that. Uh, uh, pornea, in uh, the Greek word, meant and was a catch-all for any and all sex outside of marriage. It's used uh, a lot in the New Testament and in other Greek literature and, and always describes uh, different forms of uh, extramarital sex. In the context that we see here, Paul's specifically uh, using it to describe sex uh, outside of marriage. He could have used a perfectly good word uh, for adultery, which is when you are married and you have sex with someone else, uh, but he doesn't. He uses this word uh, to show that this is broad, but also that he's really referring to uh, unmarried sex. And I know uh, 
this uh, sounds strong. He goes on to say, uh, I think this is verse 16, isn't it? Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one in body with her? See, this is his um, explanation. This is his understanding. Because he, he said, flee sexual immorality. And this sounds so strong to us. This sounds like this. Isn't this the sex is dirty view that you just said that Paul was disagreeing with? It sounds like sex is dirty, but it isn't. Paul is actually saying, no, 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 it's not dirty, it's glorious. It's not dirty, it's great, it's wonderful, it's fantastic. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one body with her? And again, don't get caught up on this word prostitute. In those days, there weren't single adults. You weren't a single adult. You were a child, you got engaged, and you were married. To be single meant to be a prostitute in that context, in the Corinthian culture and the Corinthian context. That's what that means. So what Paul is saying, do you not know that if you're having sex outside of marriage, if you're having sex with someone who you've not made a commitment, made a covenant, that you're united with that person, that, you, uh, that you're one in body with her? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Uh, again, it's an interesting phrase, this, this passage, because uh, you would think that uh, this, these words here, unites himself, surely is the same as one with her in body, right? F- physical union. Uh, don't you know that when you unite yourself together that you're one with them? But that wouldn't make sense if you just used the same word, because it'd be like saying, don't you know that when you have sex with someone... You have sex with them. And obviously that's true. You say, yes, Paul, I, I understand that. That's, that makes perfect sense to me. When you have sex, you are having sex. And so obviously that's not what Paul is saying. In other words, what Paul is saying is uh, that the, the one unites himself must be different to have being one in body or one flesh. So this is an example of, don't you know that when you have physical union, have sex with someone, you have physical union? It can't be that that's what he's saying. Because one body must be greater than joined or, or united together. One flesh is greater than just physical union. What, what, what Paul is using here, this flesh, this body, it's a term in... In Greek, it's a term in, in Hebrew that Paul is using. It, it doesn't just mean the physical body. That's not what it means. It's similar to that, to that Hebrew word nefesh, which means all of me, all of me, body and soul. Again, the idea that we are kind of body, soul, and they're separate wasn't what, it's not, it was unheard of in the Bible. It's not what the Bible believe, teaches. You are a soul, body, combined person, your whole body And so what Paul is saying is, don't you know that when you have this physical intimacy, you're also bringing into that your whole body, everything about you, your soul, your spirit, your mind, all things are involved in this one act as it goes on. Uh, So he's saying, far from being just an appetite, sex is this powerful tool for uh, spiritual growth and personal fulfillment. Far from being dirty, it's actually a beautiful image of God's glorious self-sacrificing love. But it it only is this. It makes sense in the context with which God has designed it to be. And I'll just spend the last 
time with you um, unpacking this context. Because the Bible teaches us, and what Paul is teaching here and is, is trying to show and explain to the Corinthian church, is that the context for marriage is within a covenant a covenant agreement, a covenant relationship. We call it today marriage, um, but it, it, it's a covenant. And a covenant is uh, summarized by Tim Keller here. A covenant creates a relationship far more loving and intimate than merely a legal relationship, but it's also far more binding and enduring than a merely emotional relationship. It's more loving because it's legal. So it's more loving than a legal, a legal arrangement. I might have a legal arrangement with um, the tenant. If I'm a landlord, I have people who have to pay me rent. I've got a legal arrangement with them. But I wouldn't say it's a loving relationship. Uh, but it's more l- binding and enduring than a merely emotional relationship. I have friends, but they're p- potentially they might come and go. I'm not, I'm not, they're not bound to me. They don't have to stick around. If they, 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 they could, I mean, it'd be, it'd be awfully sad if they just bailed on me, but, you know, it's not the same. A covenant is this combination, a powerful combination of emotional commitment and and a legal reality. That's what a covenant is. Um, We see that, uh, don't we, in the Bible, God makes covenants that are binding, they're legal, uh, but they're also very relational. Um. So, the other type of relationship that we have in our world, and I think the main type of relationship that we see, is a consumer relationship. That's a, the other, the main sort of type of relationship we have around us is a consumer relationship. And I think the problem that we have as a society and as a culture is that we are all really good consumers. Uh, a consumer relationship is simply this. Um, I have, uh, I'm, I'm with Telenor uh, on my phone. And uh, they've been really good so far. But recently I've had terrible um, customer relations. The guy was really rude to me uh, in the shop. And uh, also I found out that I'm paying double what my friends over at Telia. They are with Telia and they're paying half as much as me. So obviously what I'm going to do, I'm moving on. I'm going to Telia because I'm a consumer and I'm just going to go with what works for me at the moment. And as soon as Telia start messing me about and they, you know, the, I find that the signal drops, anytime I go to Mundial, the signal's gone uh, and I, I lose my phone calls, then I'm going to bounce off somewhere else, right? Um, that's a consumer relationship. And we have lots of consumer relationships. And sadly, we bring our consumer relationships into our personal relationships where if you don't fulfill my needs, if you don't meet uh, m- what I want then, well, I'm off. I'll find something better, something, uh, you know, that fulfills me, that, that meets my needs where I'm at. That is a consumer relationship. And um, uh, Tim Keller uh, unpacks this uh, amazingly, so I'm shamelessly stealing from him, uh, three points uh, to why a consumer relationship is to be avoided at all costs and a covenant relationship is to be fought for and desired, and that it's this covenant relationship that sex is vital for. Uh, The first reason is that in a covenant relationship, we have a zone of security. I can be myself. I'm no longer marketing. In a consumer relationship, 
I've got to look good. I've got to keep those washboard abs that she knew me for. I've got to, I've got to keep the beard nice and trimmed. I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to, you know, I can't make her friends upset or angry. I've got to be there when she wants to, you know, we've got a party, we're going out. I've got, you know, if I've not got the energy, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't want to disappoint her. I'm constantly marketing. And we can do that with sex too, right? You want to keep your partner? Well, I've got to be sexually fulfilling in every way. I've got to meet their needs. See, a consumer relationship can creep into marriages and it can be the basis of how we do all our relationships. But in a covenant, when I've made a promise, an agreement, I can be myself. I'm safe. I'm secure. I can, I can, let, I can, I can grow my beard out. I can let my body go. She loves me for who I am. I'm, I'm accepted for who I am. And crucially, in a, in a covenant relationship, there's an understanding. The person you marry isn't the person you stay married to because people change. We, we absolutely change. There was a, I was doing some preparation. I can't remember who said it, but one of the uh, preachers said, um, my wife has gone to bed with four different men since we've been married, and all of them have been me. Because he's... <laughs> Dramatic silence. Oh, I woke you up. Um, because in the course of our life, we don't stay the same. We change. Our interests change. We lose passion for our job. We want a, a career change. We, we discover something new. We, we, we get energy for and, and, and excitement for something different than we used to. And in a commitment, what we're saying is not, oh, you've changed, this no longer works, but uh, let's change together. Let's move together. Let's, 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 let's evolve together as people, as, as a unit, in a covenant. That's why a covenant is stronger than a, a consumer relationship. In a consumer relationship, the person you used to be is who I liked. Now that you're not that anymore, well, I don't need to stick around. Because a, a consumer relationship is about me. The second thing, we develop deeper feelings in covenant relationships. A covenant relationship is where you can develop feelings despite not feeling it. We know this with children. If you've got children, um, I, I'm... I'm personally right now experiencing it in full that children take a lot they they take a lot of energy and uh, and sleep as well that's something that you suffer uh, in when you have children but my feelings for this tiny little boy just grow and grow and grow I'm absolutely frustrated when he's screaming at four in the morning I'm disappointed when he doesn't eat all day and then is hungry like all of those, you know, I, do, I come home from work and I'm exhausted and there's Chloe with Harry. Here, you take him. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I mean, like, ah, oh. you know, I have those feelings. But I'm not going to just go, I don't know, I don't feel like this today. Am I? You can't do that with a baby because you're in a, you're, you're, you don't might know, not know, you're in a covenant relationship with that baby, right? And, and in that, deeper feelings grow. So that you just like, it doesn't matter that I'm frustrated, right? That's, that's, this is what happens in a covenant relationship. When you persist and you push through, I'm not feeling it, but I'm going to love self-sacrificially. I'm going to pick up after you. The third thing, and this was a, such a challenge for me, that Tim Keller says is that a covenant relationship gives us freedom over emotions. 
if we live our lives saying, I don't feel like this today, and that's how we live, then really we're a puppet to our emotions. We're a slave. We're a slave to how we think and feel on any given day. And I don't know about you, but uh, there's lots of things that contribute to how I feel. How I was raised and brought up. The way my mum used to talk to me. She'd, my mum didn't say things like that to me. She was always, you know, she was, she always encouraged me with this, that, and the other. How I'm, you know, have I eaten this morning? Did I have a good breakfast? Did I get enough sleep? All of these things and many more contribute to how I feel at any given moment. So what uh, Tim Keller is saying is that, uh, and I think Paul through uh, what he's teaching is that in a covenant relationship, you're persisting, you're carrying on, you're committed despite feelings. We're saying, I'm not a slave to my emotions. I'm not a slave to how I feel. I'm free over my emotions. It's saying, I'm going to make a promise and break the shackles of my own self-interest. If you want mastery over your feelings, it's a quote, if you want real freedom in marriage, make a promise. When two people make a promise in spite of their feelings, they have real freedom. They're saying to one another, I'm here to serve you. I will adjust to you and your needs. In this covenant relationship, I pick up after you because this relationship is more important than my needs or my feelings. What does this have to do with sex? Well, Sex is not a consumer good, the Bible teaches us. It, it, it isn't like donuts at the donut shop. If they're bad, you go to a different donut shop. I've never been to a donut shop. I don't know why I picked that analogy. But sex isn't, it's not, it's not a consumer, it's not donuts. It's not a consumer good. In fact, sex is covenant glue. Sex is the thing that, that makes this covenant relationship work. Why? Because of what Paul said, one flesh not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, whole body, whole mind, whole soul, every part of me. In, in, the, in the Bible, when God makes a covenant, it always comes with a sign. It always comes with a display. When he made a covenant with Noah, he said, I'm not going to flood the earth again. How do you know? Look, there's my rainbow. There's my bow in, in, in the sky, right? It's my picture for you that I won't do it again. When he made a covenant with Moses, Moses said, how will I know? And, Moses, and God said, well, circumcision is how you know. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Here's a sign, and it's a drastic one. It's a permanent one, and it's a painful one. But here's the sign, that I'm with you. I'm your God. You're my people. I'm for you. And Jesus, he makes a covenant, the new covenant, in his body, in his blood, to which the sign, the symbol, is the bread and the wine. When we take Holy Communion, we're, we're, we're reenacting the cross of Christ on our behalf, we're saying, and, and again, I hope you see the symmetry here. This is a powerful picture. We're saying uh, we're one with Christ. Doesn't Paul say that? We're, you know, he who makes himself one with the prostitute. Don't you know you're one with Christ? In communion, we are making ourselves, we're acting out that oneness. It's the sign, the symbol of the covenant. That is what sex is supposed to be. That's its, that's its function. That's its design. That's its purpose. Inside the covenantal relationship of marriage, it's a deepening, nurturing, fulfilling, sharing covenant glue. What it's saying is, here I am physically, 
just as I am spiritually and emotionally. It's an act of physical oneness that, that acts out, that plays out, that demonstrates the spiritual and emotional oneness. Outside of, of the covenant of marriage, it, it's saying, um, I, I love the feeling I get with you. I enjoy sex, but I'm not willing to commit. I'm not ready to be emotionally one. I'm not ready to be uh, emotionally naked with you. I'll enjoy sex. Yeah, sure, fine. But that's it. There's no security. There's no commitment. I'd argue there's no love. In other words, the two will become one flesh. Tim Keller says this. What Paul is saying is, you must never have this physical oneness, or you can't have this physical oneness without whole life oneness. What Paul is saying is, don't be physically naked and vulnerable without being vulnerable in your whole life. Committed, united, legally, economically, socially, emotionally, and physically. Ultimately, uh, sex seen this way and enjoyed this way as the visible representation of this invisible reality uh, is, I hope you can see, definitely not the uh, sex is just an appetite view, but it also isn't the sex is dirty. Sex is this glorious picture and symbol of unity, of vulnerability, but it's also a picture of Christ and the gospel Christ and the church. Christ, the bridegroom, who comes and gives everything of himself. Saying, and we heard this this morning, um, he gave up the joy of heaven to step into our weakness. For us, his act of ultimate self-giving, that he might be one with his bride, wrapping us up in his identity, This is what we read in verse uh, 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Again, in Ephesians 5, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. There's a bigger story going on. It's much bigger than the story that the world tells us. It's a beautiful story picture of God's self-sacrificial love for us. So in conclusion, uh, we've got this incredibly high view of sex, a powerful picture of God's covenantal commitment to us. And perhaps today some of us are thinking, uh, if sex is so important, so special, like you've said, then am I incomplete or less human for not having sex, especially if I'm single? That unless I'm married, my life is less meaningful. In creating this elevated vision of sexual union, isn't Paul creating a burden for those who live without sex? I think that's a legitimate question uh, and, and one that I'm very aware of. And I want to just say now, the answer is no. Paul, in, in literally this next chapter, chapter 7, is going to unpack a Christian worldview of singleness that basically shows that, well, after all of this, sex is this wonderful picture, this, this thing, you don't need it at all. Again, 
even more radical in his day and age and in his culture, Paul is about to unpack uh, a view of singleness that uh, is transformational for the Christian. Uh, So next time, that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about. I'm going to carry on in chapter 7 and talk about the hope of Christian singleness. I want to demonstrate that singleness can and should be actually a celebrated form of hope and trust in the great God who ultimately fulfills all our needs in ways that marriage can't. Um, Can I pray for us? And then we're done.